Yes. Um, <clears throat> we're going to take our offering too. Uh, so if you're new, you can let that head on by. That's, this is for us, the people that call this their church, um, to, to be a part of worshiping God with our finances. And um, yeah, we're really grateful for you as a community being a part of that with us. I wanted to share something with you. The other day I had a, a good chat with a friend of mine, and uh, he was just asking about our church and kind of the, the last couple of years. Um, <laughs> and um, I was actually shocked to, like, just to recall the last two and a half years of our church and how much change has happened for us. And if you're new to this place, let me give you a little background. We used to meet at the Arvada Center across the street. And a group of uh, uh, very faithful people would show up at 7 a.m. and unload a 24-foot box truck and set up our whole church. And then right at the end... (laughs) Uh, we would we would tear it all back down, put it in 14 movable carts, and jam it back into the truck every Sunday. Okay, we used to do that, um, and we did that for years, years and years. And over time, we began to like gobble up a little bit more space at the Arvada Center. You know, as we grew. Well, then COVID happened, and uh, we didn't have a place to meet, and we couldn't rent anywhere. No schools would rent to us, and so um, we were trying that online thing and then the Zoom church thing, and it was just like, this was fun for like four and a half seconds. (laughs) And then we decided, well, why don't we uh, gather in smaller clusters? And so we did this. We started a season of house churches. Um, and for many of you, that's how you found our community. For many of you, um, <laughs> for many people, that's why they left our community. But, um, <laughs> but like there's been this, it was just like this weird season of trying to figure this out. And uh, uh, it was hard. It, was, it, it took a lot for us to kind of hold tight together and to figure out kind of how God was leading us. And then this last summer is, you know, I have a lot of sarcastic things to say about COVID, but um, this last summer, as we began to emerge a little bit out of the cloud, um, we started thinking, okay, what does it look like for us to gather again? Does it look the same? Does it look different? And then this potential of buying this older church building came up, and we had a lot of mixed emotions, and how do we do this, and is this us? And, And we're still trying to figure out, well, here's the deal. We're a year into, almost a year into owning the building. It'll be December. And we're still trying to figure out who we are. I mean, you throw into the fact that um, we bought this building, and then five months later, I took a sabbatical. <laughs> and people are like, oh, great, yeah, good timing. And, um, and now I'm back, and, and as a leadership team and as a staff, we're trying to figure out who we are, where we're headed, what's the next step. For some people, change has been hard. They're like, okay, what is this church? What's kind of, what are we going to drill down? Who, who are we? And so I, I'm asking, as I was having that conversation with my friend, I thought, oh, I should have that conversation with you. Like, we've been through a lot together. And um, I, I want to thank you for having patience. 
And um, as we kind of figure out these next pieces about who we are as a community, but here's the thing I know. With all the conversations I've had with many of you and the things I've been hearing from others, and there's a lot that's going on right now in transformation amongst us. Um, some really good, new, hard, um, beautiful things that are happening in the midst of this community. And I'm excited about that. So I just wanted to share with you that part of this new rhythm for me um, coming off sabbatical and the fact that we don't set up and tear down every Sunday is that I don't have to be here right at 7 a.m. And so my wife Angela and I have been having coffee together. Um, and uh, it's just been a wonderful time for me to prepare myself to be with you. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm saying that in a, in a human way. Like, um, yes, I'm an extrovert. I'm a seven on the Enneagram, all the things. You know, I love being around people, but um, I still have to be ready to be around you. And you have to be ready to be around us. And I recognize that for many of you in this place, it's very difficult to come and be a part of a gathering like this based on what you're going through in your life, uh, based on just... Uh, feeling like you need to be guarded with people. And um, so being here is hard. I know that. Sometimes it's easier to hide in a larger church community. Um, but the fact that you're here today, I just want to say thank you. And I know it took courage to do that um, because it even takes courage for me to do that. And I have to talk to you without conversation. Um, and so all that to say, thanks, and uh, let's, uh, let's do this together. Let me pray, and we'll get, we'll get, get into this. Father, thank you for uh, being in this place with us. Um, we recognize we show up, all of us, with different uh, things on our minds and in our hearts and uh, stirring within us. Um, and we just recognize that not only has our church changed in the last two and a half years, but each of us, our lives have changed in the last two and a half years. And I just want to recognize that. Um, hurts and new chapters. Um, maybe there's been some broken relationships and maybe there's been some new job opportunities. Maybe there's been some healing that's happened. But we're all here today in this moment. And you have some things to communicate to us. What your intention is for us. What your hopes and your purpose and, and, and how you want us to orient our lives around Jesus. So we pray these things in... Um, in surrender this morning. Amen. We've been in this series called The Way of Tov. And Tov is the Hebrew word that we translate as good. But it's not just any old word. It has a lot of meaning behind it. It's not just, oh, this is good, this is bad. The word Tov is a Hebrew word meaning functioning properly. Functioning how it was intended. 
And I believe back in the story of creation that there was an intention behind God's creation for us and that has been um, broken or twisted along the way. And so my hope is through this series that we can kind of look back and dream better about what life should look like following Jesus. Now, here's the thing today. Today, we're going to be talking about ideas. Ideas are powerful. Last week, we talked about the body, our physical bodies, and how we get that um, relationship between our mind and our brains and our bodies is disconnected and disintegrated, and how there's a better intention for us, a better vision of what our whole self is in light of what God intended. But ideas are powerful, and a lot of times what happens is ideas create in us a way of living. We adopt ideologies in our bodies, and we behave in light of those ideas. Some of the most powerful ideas have come through thinkers. Um, Think about uh, today, just for um, analogy, um, Nietzsche and um, Darwin and uh, Marx, those three characters brought a lot to the world stage when it comes to thinking and the way we perceive reality as human beings. Uh, for these three, in different kind of iterations, um, the world in itself has no meaning. No telos, no purpose, and no significance unless it's given meaning by human action. Human beings through self-creation, or as Karl Marx called it, class struggle, um, we bring meaning to what is created. Uh, meaning, uh, sorry, meaning is created. It's not just inherent. It's not just given. So Nietzsche, fascinating enough, had a real pushback against Christianity. All religion, but specifically Christianity. Now, I want to remind you, and this is helpful for us to go through this today, Christianity is not an idea. It's an event. And I want to make sure that's really distinct as we head into this. Um, And I'll unpack that here in a little bit. But Nietzsche rejected Christianity. He rejected any authority outside of the self. And what happened is, is like he's rejecting these ideas of God's intention for us, this uh, idea of goodness and latent purpose and potential and functionality. And he rejected it. And, and if you follow along in his life, um, further, further in his life, because of his ideas and the way he thought through things and the way things were rejected along the way, Nietzsche became a madman literally became a madman. And in his own autobiography, um, he writes this about himself. This is a fascinating quote. He says, I know my fate. One day my name will be associated with the memory of something tremendous, a crisis without equal on earth, the most profound collision of conscience a decision that was conjured up against everything that had been believed, demanded, hallowed so far. I am no man, 
I am dynamite. Nietzsche knew the power of his ideas to have an effect throughout history. So ideas are powerful. And like I said, last week we talked about the body and sometimes this idea, like our ideas actually affect how we live in our body. So when we talk about ideology, trust me, we'll get to scripture soon. (laughs) Ideology is marked by two basic features. The first one is when you take part of the truth and you make it the whole. Okay? So for instance, you may have grown up in a church experience, and I'll just bring this back to kind of like the Christian experience. You may have grown up in a church experience that everything was about sin. There was just a heavy emphasis on sin and you're a sinner and everything you do is sinful <laughs> and everything you think is sinful and it's just this heavy emphasis on sin. That is in a sense an ideology that's not totally accurate. It's part of the truth, but it's not the whole thing. Okay, does that make sense? So um, us humans, we're a mixed bag, and it's true that on the one hand, we're made in the image of God, we're divine fingerprints, uh, we're created very good, it says in Scripture, tov, functionality, purpose, designed by God, uh, and, and, and then the loving rule of the Trinity to have a relationship with Trinity, But as we said last week, we're also temples in ruins. We have we've been warped by the fall, and we have a soul in a sense that's kind of, as Luther said, bent in on itself. And we keep putting ourselves in a place of rulership that ends up always going badly. So that ideology is when you, uh, when you take part of the truth and make it the whole. And the other kind of version of ideology, uh, 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 you know, a way of describing it is making a good thing uh, and making it, taking a good thing and making it ultimate. And this is what theologians throughout history have called idolatry. Taking a good thing and propelling it and making it ultimate. So in our culture, uh, taking equality or freedom or justice and making it an ultimate thing, something that we worship, something that we, it's a de facto God. So when humanity in its way, in its moral reasoning, and we have this autonomy, we put ourselves at the center and not God, that's idolatry. That's, you know, that kind of language. Um, so the reason why I'm talking about this is ideologies sometimes are easy to worship. And it's a, it's a very hard, difficult thing, but sometimes it's just easy for us to just begin to worship a way of thinking or a way of seeing the world. And this is no matter if you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not. I just think that it's so easy for us. For instance, um, Leslie Newbegin, who in the 60s was a, I, was, I felt like a really a prophet. He's written a lot of uh, important things for the Christian church, but he claimed that one day Americans would worship politics. <laughs> 
And I think he nailed it on that one. For instance, think about our political tribes right now. And some of you are like, why are we talking about politics? Because it's an ideology. All the political tribes have a gospel. They have a priesthood. They have conversion stories. I mean, just this week, someone in one tribe moved to another tribe. They have dogma and doctrine. They have a way of excommunicating people. Um, They have theories about how the world should look. Um, I mean, all all of the above, right? There's like a, a line that says you're in or you're out, you know? And here's the huge, ugly problem with ideologies. And this is where I think we have to put the mirror up for us who follow Jesus. The argument from people outside of the church is, you're no different than us. So the argument is, you guys go to church on Sunday, but you're still angry just like we are. And you have, uh, your ideas are no, I mean, your ideas are not very different from ours. They're just, you embody them differently. So think about it. So from someone on the outside of the Christian world looking in, our divorce rate's no different. We're as angry and as mean as everybody else. We have celebrity pastors and scandals. And um, we have crazy stuff that's attached to us. I read an article, I was like, pastors, we pass articles around to each other. Those of us in the biz. (laughs) And there was an article that came out a number of years ago where a guy was like berating the fact that we have these celebrity pastors in our biz. And he was just talking about, like, it's just so sad because you guys aren't really that much different than the rest of the world. So let me, let me just read this. He says, so if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I am not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following... I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Let's just sit with that one for a second. (laughs) So, the temptation, and here's the reality of it, the temptation is just what it's always been for the people of God. It's a very ancient thing. And this is, it goes all the way back. It's not God or that we struggle with. It's God and. And that's what theologians call syncretism. There's an Exodus passage. And it's a story, we could study this one. By the way, all these things we've talked about the last number of weeks could be like their own series, so I apologize. And maybe one day they will be. 
But there's this Exodus passage, and Moses goes up the mountain, and he has this time with God, and the people are down the mountain, and they're getting frustrated. They're, they're agitated. They're waiting for Moses to return. And, and, and they manipulate their high priest to do something about it. And so he says, okay, give me all your gold. And he melts it down, and he makes a golden calf. You guys know the story. Some of you may not, but. And they begin to worship that golden calf. And do you know what they call that golden calf? Yahweh. Which is what they were intended. They were intending to worship Yahweh. And they make a golden calf and name it Yahweh. And what ends up happening is there's, they engage in what scripture calls, depending on your translation, revelry. And revelry isn't just like, woohoo, it, it's pretty dark. Won't go into it. But a guy named Chris Wright wrote a book about these idols. And he fast-forwarded it to our time. And he says, with, with some of the three, the three major idols that followers of Jesus struggle with in our time are prosperity, national pride, and self-exaltation. And that today, we struggle with a bit of syncretism on our, just like the ancients did, on, on our terms and on our uh, turf, if you will. We have kind of like a DIY faith. And we mix Western individualism and wealth creation and self-focus, and we bundle it with some Jesus stuff. It's like cable bundling, you know, only different. <laughs> only with your soul. So what do we do? Because I really believe that the mind that God intended us, the, the way of seeing the world that God intended for us is really beautiful. And we are inundated with so much ideology that it's hard to struggle with this. So we're gonna go to the church in Corinth. Now, confession to make. Matthew did a great job reading scripture today, but I gave you the wrong scripture. <laughs> It was good. It was real good. But that was 1 Corinthians, and I should have told you 2 it, No, it's, it's okay. I'm going to read it. You feel like reading it right now? Okay, no, okay, let's go. All right. So Corinth, this little city, big city, actually, very progressive, very full of ideology, very, very, in context, kind of more, in a sense, um, more crazy of a city than even Denver. Paul writes to this church. And this is his second letter in Scripture, but really we think it's his third. And we think there was a letter in between his second letter and this letter that went to him, and he's responding to it. And in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, it's going to sound a little different. <laughs> he, 
He says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. We're going to stop right there for a second. Notice his tone. He is like full on intense and he's got this feeling towards them. Um, but he comes with this humility, like he's, he's kind of like diplomatic about it. He, he loves them and he wants them to see what they are missing. But he's pretty intense about it as well. He says, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away. Anybody feel like that with people? Like you're face to face with them, you're like, oh, I don't want to ruffle feathers, but I'm going to write him a letter. You know, <laughs> that's like Paul is right here. He's like, I got some things to say to you, and it's hard to do it face to face, right? <laughs> Oh, man. They, we think that they sent him a letter and they were just like, you're not that impressive of a person. You know, he had this. Anyway, there's some things happening. Anyhow, he says, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I ex expect towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Uh, apparently, there are some in the church who actually think that um, there's some standards of the world that they just should live by as a community. And there's some people, even just in our day and age, that feel that same way too. The, the world here is a technical term. It's not just, you know, the earth. It's not, you know, it's a technical term that the New Testament writers talk about. And it's this, this idea that the, the systems of the world, the... Um, the kind of the energy that goes behind things in the world, the practices, the morals, the values, the social norms of culture um, are, are kind of corrupted. And they're corrupted by two things. One, the sin of kind of rebellion against kind of what God wants and a redefinition of what is good, tov, and what is evil, ra. Okay, so... This idea of like just kind of how the world naturally by default operates, okay? Now, in our time and space, there is a left version of this. There is a right version of this. And whatever way you want to slant it, we're, we feel the pull of the world. And we have to try and resist it if we're going to do the things that Jesus wants us to do. And see the world the way that Jesus wants us to see it. And he goes on, so for though we live in the world, and this is his, this idea of like, we, we're just like normal people. We live in the world, we pay our taxes, we walk our dogs, we do, we do things in this space and time. Um, we're right here and we're, you know, all these ideologies are coming at us. We do not wage war as the world does. Okay, so this is, some of you are freaking out like, what does this mean? Um, this isn't one of those things where I'm like, we're going to take back America for God. You know, um, that's also an ideology. <laughs> um, it's a separate ideology. So we follow a teacher and a rabbi and a savior that preaches nonviolence and enemy love. And that is actually radical for almost every tribe uh, of our day and age. So... Um, which some of you are like, it's easy not to have violence towards somebody. And, it's, and, and some of us have a hard time in our hearts with contempt, though. Um, 
which is a pastime for some of us. Um, it's easy. Um, verse 4, go to this. It says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. So Paul's saying it's like we don't fight with intellectualism. We don't fight with military um, stuff. Um, we fight with something that's got divine power. That word uh, power is dunamis. This is where we get the word dynamite, which is like this idea of like, like a burst of energy, like a burst of, of power. Um, we, define, we, we fight with divine power. Um, and then he goes on to say to demolish strongholds. Another word for demolish is to take down, take apart, deconstruct strongholds. We'll talk about that word here in a second. Um, that word stronghold is okuruma, which is a military fortification. Uh, there are fortified positions where the enemy is dug in, Paul says. Um, in here, in a church, and out there, um, um, it may be a lie uh, about uh, yourself that you come to believe about yourself and about who God is. Uh, maybe a lie that you're tending to believe about what the good life actually is, uh, a large 401k and a, a house in the burbs or whatever, um, that that's the good life, or it might be a moral opinion or a habit or a relationship that you've opened your heart up to, um, that there's like a stronghold there. Uh, it might be intentional or unintentional. Uh, wherever we give in a sense, the enemy, a foothold in our hearts, um, gives way to Paul's language of a stronghold um, that we cannot push out on our own, that we actually need divine dunamis, divine power, okay? He says, do we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God? This is fascinating because the word um, arguments is... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to butcher that. Um, it's basically thought patterns, okay, or ideas we've been talking about. And then this whole idea of every pretension, it's hoopsoma in Greek. It's exalted thing, every lofty opinion, every, um, I think Eugene Peterson translated it, um, ideology, every ideology, and these strongholds of the enemy in our minds and in our bodies are ideas and ideologies, okay, that are animated by a power that is hostile to God, the hostile to God's tov. It is against what God intended in us and for us. And so look at what Paul's strategy is to resist. He says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. For Paul, there's a battle that wages in our minds. And sometimes it's not just an actual, uh, you know, I'm going to choose to think about this and do, go this direction. It could be like just a very simple, uh, slow, tacit uh, ideology that's crept into our lives or a lie we've told ourselves about ourselves, or a lie that someone has spoken over us about who we are that is not true. And those things begin to get a place in us. 
And he says, like, the, bo- the, 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 the battle is in our minds, and it's not just out there in the public discourse, like, I'm going to tweet, a, you know, like, it's not that. It's, it's what's happening in here in our hearts. Um, and the goal, God's tove, his goodness for us, is to make our lives, our whole life, obedient to Christ. And, and here's the thing about obedience, and this is... The word obedience is such a tricky word, isn't it? Gosh, we don't like that word. (laughs) But here we go. Um, When you do what Jesus did, follow me on this. When you do what Jesus did because you agree with Jesus, just to clarify, that's not obedience. Oh, let me unpack this a little bit. <laughs> when, you do what you, when you do the things of Jesus because you agree with Jesus, that's not obedience. What I mean is, is that doing what you want, okay, and you think is best and you happen to agree with Jesus on, that's not obedience. That's just, okay, that worked out. Obedience is you and I doing the things that Jesus did even if you don't understand it? Or even if you disagree with Jesus on this one? You do it because you trust Jesus. You trust Jesus for his wisdom and because of his authority in your life as your Lord and Savior. He is, is, in a sense, Guiding you forward, even though you are resisting, you trust and take that step. So obedience out of trust and not just agreement. Sometimes uh, neuroscientists say that the best way to change a, a thought is to act differently first. So you actually behave your way into a better thinking. And that is difficult for us to do. The early church had a pattern of this called the catechumenate. And I shared a little bit about this a few, year, uh, few weeks ago. Years? Feels like years. Weeks ago. And the catechumenate is like if someone like got a taste of this Jesus-following community, they would start to ask questions of the people they knew within the community. It wasn't just a, hey, everyone's welcome. Because in the early church... You couldn't welcome everyone because there were people who were wanting to take the church out. And so it was kind of more of a secret society, and you actually bumped into people who followed this Jesus. And then if you wanted to begin to follow this Jesus, you would begin to meet with this person that you, uh, they would sponsor you, you know, and they would kind of help you and guide you along the way. Much like some of you have been involved with AA and there's been sponsor, you've sponsored someone or someone sponsored you. It's kind of that kind of a feeling. Like you walk this journey together. Now, church, listen. It's really important here. You need to understand is that followers of Jesus throughout centuries have disagreed on a lot of things. They've disagreed on a lot of things. They've disagreed on how to form governments and how to gather as a community and how to parent and all the things, all throughout history. Some things are clear in Scripture 
And some things are kind of opaque in Scripture. It's like, what do we do with this? But there is a body of truth that you and I can safely say, this is what followers of Jesus live and believe. That you and I actually, if you begin to follow Jesus and surrender your life to Jesus, you will begin to experience and learn some of the same things that people have done for centuries and centuries. Something that is ancient, something that is global and historic, something that is deep and rich. And I want to introduce you to a word that scares some people, reintroduce you to a word that scares some people. The word is orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is basically a word that uh, means the way. Means the way. And the way as a form of allegiance to Jesus as Lord, but also in a, this kind of more or less confrontational language, a trusting surrender to the love and the wisdom of, of Christ. And I truly believe and hope that we are an Orthodox church. And we're here because we love Jesus. And we find in Jesus some, some angry ones in here, but we find in Jesus a vision for maybe the most compelling way to live as human beings. That we can sit in the presence of Jesus and experience his peace and that we can read scripture and let the words of, and the gospels and the, the kind of the whole arc of scripture just kind of penetrate our minds and our bodies. Now here's the thing, we're quick to apologize. We need to be quicker to apologize all the ways we fail to live up to this life that Jesus has on offer because people are watching. But we don't apologize for following Jesus because Jesus is the Christ. And Christ means the king. And he died for our sins and he died to heal us, not only of the things that have happened to us, but the things that we've done to others. And God raised Jesus from the dead and he sits at the right hand of the Father and he is King of kings and he is Lord of lords and one day he will usher in a new city. A city that we all ache for. And one day he will wipe every tear and end and evil forever. That is the gospel. That is Jesus. That is the life that Jesus has on offer. And so for some of us today, that is hard to swallow because of the, the things that we've experienced to us in our bodies from other people, uh, the ways we've been hurt, um, all around us, people are at, an, uh, at a stage of dismantling their beliefs right now. Um, many uh, in my world are reconsidering the way of Jesus. And is it true and right? Is it beautiful and good? Some are feeling like they're being swept away by some of the ideas in their world that have become bigger than following Jesus. And what in our moment, I think, is called, and many of you have heard this term, but deconstruction. People are deconstructing their faith. They have experienced 
um, some frustration over the last two and a half years. Now, on a note on this before we end, there is a good type of deconstruction, and you see it in the pages of Scripture, all throughout Scripture. Jesus in the temple is deconstructing the way that the faith uh, following uh, God had been enacted, and Jesus deconstructs it physically <laughs> and with words. Um, Hebrew prophets, read the Hebrew prophets, read Amos. He is deconstructing how the people of Israel began to live out their life through their economics towards the people who were poor. The saints throughout history, Teresa, Teresa of Avila, uh, the reformers, they used scripture to deconstruct what the people of God were up to. But there's another type of deconstruction that uses the world and what the New Testament calls the world, right, to critique Scripture's authority over the people of God. Um, some of you today are struggling with some of this. Some of you today might be sitting here going, I, I doubt a lot of things right now. Um, there's a great book out there by a guy named A.J. Swoboda, who Randy actually <laughs> did some uh, learning under. Um, and he wrote a book called After Doubt, and it's beautiful, and it's robust if you want to wrestle with some things. Um, but here's what typically happens in Christian circles when people express doubt. Uh, people freak out because <laughs> it, it kind of mushes up against their beliefs and they get defensive. And so what happens a lot of times in Christian circles is that the response is, uh, it comes in a couple different forms. One of them is to double down on the truth and say it louder. <laughs> And sometimes people, uh, the other one is to kind of demonize doubt. Like say, doubt's bad. You shouldn't be doubting. That's demonic or whatever. And I just want you to know that I don't, I don't agree with either of those. Um, if you're wrestling and struggling and frustrated and deconstructing and you have doubts, oh man, let's talk Let's have a great conversation. I'm not going to try to push you into one thing or the other. I just I want to hear your story. And I think all of us, we just need to have the posture of hearing story. Where did you land here? How did you get here? What's going on in your life? Now, there's some external factors that I think are going on. Um, real briefly, a couple of those. I think a lot of times in the American church experience, there's something called cheap grace. That is, that is it's, there's a lot of churches not all, there's some fantastic churches, but there are some churches that are very much more about you converting to their brand than to Jesus. And I'll just say that just in straight honesty. Um, and so it's, it's easy to follow Jesus. It becomes part of the bundling, right? Sometimes we have just a lot of our external factors are we've been disconnected from the people of God over the last two and a half years because of the pandemic and the frustrations and all the things. And so ideologies have just really crept up and we're like, oh man, that sounds better. That sounds like a better vision for humanity than um, this mean church I was going to. And, and some of you are like looking out at the tragic breakdown of spiritual leaders that have just 
I mean, I have books on my shelves of people that I used to look up to. And I'm like, crap. So those are external factors. Just be honest. Internal factors. Some of us, we've kind of missed out on this. Uh, we've kind of pushed away this lack. We have this lack of fearing God again. We, we just have we, lack of surrender to God's fierce love for us. And it is a fierce love for us. It's not a tepid, well, if you feel like loving me back. You know, God loves us with a ferocity. And I think that that should engage in some of us like a, a, a reverence and an awe and in a sense of fear, a beautiful fear of who God is and what God wants with us. For, for some of us, we, our minds are just inundated with digital input to a degree that we just are we're over we're over um, good word for this stimulated by input and we have no room for the thoughts of God and scripture and let's just be honest this third one I think is where a lot of people are at a lot of people have a wounded heart just been so hurt, whether it's by people in the church or a person in authority or your family of origin. And we've talked about family of origin trauma in our, life, in our time as a church. And some of you are like, ah, that's in the past. God forgave me and, and God, I'm a new creation, so I don't have to worry. No, those are bags that fly free. They come with you. They come with you into your marriage. They come with you into parenting. They come with you all along your life. And when we fail to look at some of those things and see how we're wounded, we miss out on some healing that I feel like God wants us to experience. Some of you are here and you're experiencing a woundedness because you are not at the stage of life you wish you were at. Some of you wish you were had children by now or some of you wish you were married by now or some of, whatever it is. There's wounds. And so that brings in, and then there's, <laughs> some of you have literally experienced trauma in your life, abuse, and then followed up by the lies that you tell yourself about yourself, like I'm not good enough, or I'm not worthy enough, or I'm not uh, lovable enough. And there's like this double trauma. And you can't experience God's love because of this, how you see yourself. Now, some of you are here right now, you're like, great, thanks for bringing this up. I would rather just talk about a piece of scripture and you tell me what to do and I leave. And I feel a little bit better and it's just kind of like a little, little bit of skim coating on my life. If you feel these things right now, if you're deconstructing and you're wrestling with who you are and who God is, uh, my, this is my, I'm not looking down on you. It's my loving attempt to appeal to you to open up to the love of God, to open your heart again to the love of God, to, to wonder and trust in God's love again. And my loving appeal to, for some of you to guard your heart and to seek out a community, a trusting group of people that can walk with you in this. Now, real quick to finish... Is there a way that can help us navigate this? 
together. Well, um, on the top of my list for us as far as practices are scripture and community. And we will say it until we're blue in the face. Scripture and community together um, are just beautiful and hard. Remember what I told you before. Christianity is, 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 is not an idea. It's an event. And the reason why we believe it's an event is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus changed everything. It sent ripples and shockwaves throughout history. That God raised Jesus from the dead, dead for, one, for many reasons, but for one of those reasons is to validate Jesus' claim on life. That Jesus made all these claims about what life was about and, and what we could be. And then he said that he was going to die and be rose again in three days, and that's what happened. And it was like validation to who Jesus was. And we don't trust, you know, we don't trust Jesus because of the Bible. We actually trust the Bible because of Jesus. That Jesus loved Scripture and read it and quoted it and used it and 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 showed it to the world. So. Um, as we, uh, there's so many thing, more things I could say, and I'm not going to do it because we're really running out of time. When I mean scripture, I mean less just straight Bible studies and maybe more practicing sessions together. I think it's really good to learn scripture, but I think it's better to practice it in community. And... Um, for some of you, um, it's, it's about how much is coming into your mind. And if I could be so bold as to say is uh, less NPR and Tucker Carlson and more scripture might be a better path forward for many of us. And disciplining the input into our, some of us, some of you may need to change your alarm clock to one of those old like analog ones, and it's not your phone, so that the first thing you do maybe in the morning could be scripture and not all the little red buttons that tell you the notifications. Like, what would it look like to be the kind of community that wrestled out what we believed believed in how we lived it together? And that's the mind. And that's intentionality. I want to pray. Father, this morning we talked about a lot of things and maybe too many things. But you have an intention behind us as human beings that that many that oftentimes comes from what we think. Many wise people have said all throughout the ages that we become what we contemplate. And there's so many things in this world that can grab our attention and grab our, and can pull at us with fear and, and cause us to live and act out in our bodies a way of life that is contrary to 
your intentionality for us, your tove for us. And some of us in this room are confused and frustrated and hurt, struggling with doubt, struggling with our place in this world that you created. And for many reasons, we're struggling. Some of those have to do with our own decisions. Some of those have to do with um, things that have happened to us. But God, we seek to be a community that wrestles with these things together. That openly talks about our stories, that reads the hard words of scripture together and attempts even on a small scale, to begin to practice together? What does it look like for us to practice community together? What does it look like for us to practice silence and solitude and rest and meals together and generosity? What does it look like for us to practice prayer and loving one another and forgiving one another, and bearing the weight of life of one another together. What does that look like? Well, I refuse, God, I refuse to believe it looks like showing up and just leaving. Showing up to church every once in a while and just leaving. I refuse to believe that that is the way of life you've called us to. God, show us how to do that. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Before you go, and I will, oh, sorry. I just looked at my watch. I'm so sorry. Love the children's people downstairs who have been down there for a long time. I pray that you become more and more a people who let Scripture and the love of God inform your day. If you are struggling with your faith today and you want to have a conversation about that, what I'm thinking about doing is is just being here on Tuesday night, 6.30, in the little family room area downstairs. If you want to just come and just go, I'm, I'm really wrestling with the church, with this, with this ideology, whatever. Like, you just want to talk? Like, like, there might be a few of us. There might be nobody. I don't know. (laughs) But why don't we have a place to meet? It's kind of cool. Um, 6.30, I'll just plan on being here. We'll just talk. Deal? All right, get out of here.